Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. The thing that I think is most interesting about what's going on right now, the whole zeitgeist, the the whole thing around Brett Kavanaugh is what's happening over on Fox News. This this I find absolutely fascinating. Chuck Grassley floated a conspiracy theory on Fox Business 90 minutes before Donald Trump tweeted something absolutely outrageous. This conspiracy theory that Chuck Grassley floated was that George Soros is paying the demonstrators who are outside his office. A wealthy Jew. The subtext whenever George Soros's name is invoked, because, I mean, you know, compared to the Koch brothers, he does in one year what the Koch brothers do in an afternoon in terms of, you know, funding and, and coordination and everything else. But Laura Ingram tweeted, Soros strikes again. This was last week. She's with Fox News. That was after Jeff Flake was confronted in the elevator. And then Trump tweets that the very rude elevator screamers are paid professionals only looking to make senators look bad. Now, this is echoing what Chuck, Chuck Grassley had said on Fox 90 minutes earlier. Don't fall for it, Trump tweets. Also, look at all of the professionally made identical signs paid for by Soros and others. Those are not signs made in a basement from love. I think you could say the same thing about all the uh, Trump signs that are held at his rallies. These may well you know, be signs that are being made in, in D.C. by some sign maker. Who knows? But so what? But the, the thing that's really interesting is that Trump goes all anti-Semitic. Ben Shapiro over on Fox News, he says, I wasn't aware that Brent Kavanaugh forfeited his presumption of innocence or due process of law simply because of the color of his skin. Say what? What does this have to do with race? Oh, there's two black people on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. Is that what this is all about? Apparently over at Fox News, it is. Uh, This uh, Amanda Marcotte Marcotte writing in Salon today. If you flip on Fox News these days, you'd think the battle is largely about race and that the white men are being subject to false rape allegations to perpetuate some sort of anti-white oppression. Tucker Carlson said on Fox, You might wonder what in the world this story, the Kavanaugh story, has to do with race. And then he answers his own question. He says it's about punishing everyone who looks like Brett Kavanaugh. In other words, let's get the white guys. Apparently an effort being led by Dianne Feinstein, you know, a white person. But, you know, go figure. Martha McCallum on Fox News wondered if Kavanaugh should say, I'm not guilty because I'm a white guy. You know, Ben Shapiro, the quote I just gave you, and all of this seems to have followed on on Ann Coulter. She apparently was the one who started all this. She said white privilege means that any white male can be accused with evidence free accusations like this. But Tucker Carlson in particular, Amanda Marcotte writes, is embracing the opportunity to use Kavanaugh's skin color to convince white middle class and working class Americans to align themselves with essentially the Koch brothers with the money to lead the, the, the billionaire class against people of color even though these working class white people share the same economic concerns with the people of color. Carlson was even shameless enough, she writes, to characterize a crowd that booed Senator Lindsey Graham for his defense of Donald Trump as waging a revolution against the working class, in quotes. So Donald Trump, the billionaire who uh, inherited 413 or, or scammed $413 million from his dad, 
is the representative of the working class in America and actual working class people who are out there protesting. No, not so much. So. On the line with us is uh, Mimi Kennedy, the actress, activist, writer, board chair of Progressive Democrats of America, pdamerica.org, star of the hit series Mom on CBS, pdamerica.org, the website. Mimi Kennedy LA is her Twitter handle. Mimi, welcome back to the program. Tom, I'm so glad to be back on the program with you. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you with us. So, uh, you know, the last time you were on, we were talking about ballot images, that some of these electronic voting machines actually capture an image of the vote, which could be used for an audit, just like a paper trail. And apparently one of the groups that is promoting this is being sued, Audit USA, or has been threatened with a lawsuit from one of the voting machine companies. What's going on here? They got what's called a threat letter, seems to be uh, the litigious uh, bullying society. But what they've threatened is uh, to take Audit USA to court if they don't take off their website the manual that shows election officials how these ballot images can be saved. It's just a choice on the menu. Many election officials, John Brakey found as he went across the United States trying to get people to save their ballot images, they didn't know it existed. They're like, well, we didn't read the manual and we don't know. There's a lot of county election officials that have not been technically trained. So this was part of a citizen education. Here's the manual. Here's what we're talking about. And ESNS is going, no, it's our copyright. But you, you can't do anything. It's not the code. You can't do anything with a manual unless you have the machine right there. Only the election offices have the machine. And the SNS isn't telling their, their counties that these ballot images exist. So it seems like a threat. Oh, my God, you're trying to make us transparent. You can't. You citizens, shut up. Go away. No, we're going to count the vote. And as Stalin said, it's who counts the vote. So I guess the SMS is on Stalin's side. Yes, we have two issues here. One is the millions of people who are being illegitimately, incorrectly, inaccurately, or perhaps accurate because they were targeted because they were young, old, or a minority, a racial minority, who are being thrown off the voting rolls all across the United States in an effort that has been championed by Donald Trump and Chris Kobach. And then at the same time, even if you do end up voting, if your name hasn't been purged from the voting list, you may well be voting on a machine that could be doing anything to your vote. Anything to your vote. And that's the trouble with untransparent digital counting and fraction counting. As we know, we've done fraction magic and talked about how it's undetectable. But the ballot images are a means of audit. And interestingly, Tom, because the Help America Vote Act had some language about, well, it has to be auditable in case, you know, for a challenge. Mm -hmm. So ballot images were sort of included and talked about by the vendors as well. We have a picture of every ballot we scan, so you could look at those. And now they're hiding them. Mm. Also, I want to caution people. The Republicans are trying to go, oh, ballot images, great. Now that you want those, let's make those the only audit mechanism. Let's never go to the paper ballots. And that's not cool because you could duplicate, you could mess with ballot images digitally. And if you never connected them to their paper source by some sort of percentage, let's connect and see if all these ballot images are really from their source, that would be a percentage audit. Right. Uh, do both. You can't just do it by device. And then the third issue is how vulnerable are our election systems, and this would include our voting registration rolls, to hacking. And we know that, at least according to the FBI, that the Russians have hacked into the voting systems and the registration rolls of, of yeah. numerous states now. And, yeah. uh, and, and according to Trump, the Chinese have done the same thing. And yep. there's some evidence that other countries as well have, uh, Iran specifically, have penetrated, and North Korea have penetrated our voting systems. Um, So so what's being done about all these things, Mimi Kennedy? Uh, Well, two federal legislations failed because really our elected officials are scared to tell election offices what to do, our elected officials. So here's my solution uh, and what I'm trying to message. We, each of us voters, we have to protect our own vote. So here's what I'm telling people to do. Go to your secretary of state, check your registration. In your registration, check if you're not, if it's not right, if anything's wrong or if you're not there, call the number there or go down to your office and make sure you register. Don't depend on somebody canvassing. you got to go down to the office. And you want to do it online soon because later they're going to go, oh, you weren't on the rolls because you registered too late. We were backlogged. Number two, 
if your registration shows that you're a vote-by-mail voter, make sure that you get that vote-by-mail ballot and either vote it and send it in early so it's in election night returns because anything coming in too near to election night won't be processed and won't be in election night returns. You need to vote the ballot or if you prefer to vote at the polls, you've got to bring that ballot in and surrender it unvoted or they won't give you a ballot because they'll assume you used it and you're voting twice. Then you'll vote provisional. Don't get in the provisional batch. It's bad in every state. Right. You need to be in the regular ballot batch. So you've got to check your registration, note your vote by mail status, take care of either getting the damn ballot. Don't go, well, I didn't get it and I want to vote. They'll go, well, you can't vote. You're going to vote provisional. You've got to make sure that you tell the office, I haven't gotten my ballot and I want it. You also need to take a screenshot of your registration and maybe print it out and take it to the polls because they might tell you, well, you're not here. And you can say, yeah, well, I was here. This is not my fault. Somebody's gotten into your voter rolls. These ways of protecting ourselves can either actually protect us and get us a regular vote at the polls. Certainly obeying all the rules will do that. If you've been purged, these methods will start to create a lot of people who did this and going, something is really wrong. And then we have more evidence so that we don't hear there's no evidence. It only happened to you. And people feel ashamed. They walk away going, oh, it's made to vote provisional. I don't know why. Well, here's why. They might be gaming you. So stay out of the game. And take a screenshot of that registration and know you were on the rolls. And if you're not on the rolls, register now. It's, uh, I think there's still a window of opportunity in most states. Don't wait because they will say, all oh, these young people didn't know and they registered late and it backlogged and we don't have them on the rolls. Right. Provisional, though, that's cool. It's not cool. So protect yourself. We have to protect ourselves. Now it's down to that. There you go. Mimi Kennedy with Progressive Democrats of America, pdamerica.org, this extraordinary work that you've been doing for years and years on this issue of voter integrity. Mimi, thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. It's great, great. talking with you. It's always great having you with wonderful. us. Thank okay. you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks a lot. Let me just share this with you real quickly. I mentioned yesterday the Indiana feticide law. Indiana is one of two states with these bizarre laws. It's been on hold for a couple of years by a federal judge. It's not in place right now, but before the federal judge put it on hold, most people have probably forgotten the story. This is from uh, the spring of 2015 of Pervy Patel. Now, in 2013, January 2013, January 14th, 2013, in fact, Mike Pence was sworn in as governor of Indiana. In late July of that same year, Pervy Patel, this is from Esha Pondit writing over at Salon. In late July of that same year, Pervy Patel went to the hospital in pain. Pretty sure there's a woman of Indian ancestry bleeding heavily after a miscarriage. The doctor who saw her suspected she had induced an abortion and called the police. When Patel woke up after sedation, there was a police officer standing by her bed and the anti-choice doctor had left the hospital to go in search of the fetus. And sure enough, they found one. And despite hospital tests showing no traces of any abortifacient in her blood work, the state of Indiana charged her with both feticide for allegedly inducing an abortion and child neglect for allegedly having a premature baby. This originally happened the same year that Pence was sworn in. And then the next year, 2014, she's arrested. In March of this year, then, this is from this piecing salon, Pence signed a law prohibiting women from obtaining an abortion because of race or the gender or disability of the fetus, making Indiana the second state in the nation to do this. This has scared the hell out of people of color because you, can, you could now say to a woman who is not Caucasian, who had a miscarriage, that she had actually tried to induce that because she had a child who was a person of color. She was trying to induce an abortion based on race. And she basically has no defense. I mean, this is, this is what happened to Pervy Patel. In fact, uh, Pervy Patel had had numerous text messages with a friend of hers uh, talking about how she was afraid to go to the doctor because, you know, she didn't know what would happen. So anyhow, a federal judge blocked this law. What happened then on March 30th, was 33-year-old Pervy Patel was sentenced to 20 years in prison. She had been facing a 70-year sentence under Mike Pence's laws in Mike Pence's Indiana. 70-year sentence. They sentenced her to 20 years in prison for this miscarriage. She originally, she was sentenced actually to 30 years. 10 years was suspended. And then they uh, had also a six-year sentence on the feticide charge that overlapped that. Now, since then, she has, she has gotten out. The, I believe this uh, sentence has been reversed, in fact, or at least is on hold. 
But I mean, this is the world that Brett Kavanaugh would have us live in. This is the world that Mike Pence and now Donald Trump would have us live in. So that is like right up at the top of the list of the stakes in this debate. Although everybody's framing it about whether Christine Blasey Ford should be believed, and obviously, you know, she should be, and whether the FBI should be doing an investigation into that. And yes, they should have. And yes, the White House blocked that from happening. But there are other things on the docket. I mean, you know, we're looking at the end of Roe v. Wade, among other things. We're, we're looking at the end of possibly Medicare and Social Security and the Environmental Protection Agency, if Kavanaugh believes that they're all unconstitutional. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Because the Federalist Society generally, or at least the people associated with it, generally take that position that these things are unconstitutional. And now there will be five Federalist Society people on the court. BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online. And because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. Tony in Los Angeles. Hey, Tony, what's up? Hi, Tom. I just called to say, white folks, some of y'all are having a black experience right now. <laughs> okay, how so? <laughs> in the sense that, I mean, you'll never know where we truly feel, but what I'm saying is, you, a lot of progressive white folks are starting to see the racism that we've been dealing with forever. Oh, yeah. And just how far white people, racist white people will go to keep what they have. Yeah, it's pretty shocking you know, that, you know, Fox News is turning this all into Kavanaugh's under assault because he's a white guy. And uh, I mean, it's just breathtaking. Well, it's not surprising to me. Everything <laughs> is about race in this country. Let's be I think you're right. totally honest. Yeah, at the uh, end of the day. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for them, when they see they're losing or whatever, I mean, because you couldn't help but know that that woman was not lying. So it's, yeah. it's this cognitive dissonance. You have to um, fix it in your mind that, oh, okay, um, I can't really believe this woman, um, uh, Professor Ford, I mean, but... Um, you know, let's make it about the race thing. The race thing always works. So let's take it back there, and then people will be pissed, and then they'll they'll vote accordingly, and then there you go. So then that way, you know, just like those women that confronted uh, Senator Flake, come on now. Anybody with half of a brain cell knows what those women were saying was true and should believe them. But the fact that you can just disregard that for no other reason other than just just sticking with your party and sticking with being white. Well, the big, and, and the big, if I may, the, the big issue here, in my opinion, is that the levers of power, the machine of power, the FBI, did not investigate, you know, did not talk to any no. of the corroborating witnesses. They, they refused to actually investigate these allegations. They refused to interview uh, Dr. Ford or uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And that right. tells me that this is not just you know, some, you know, you know, crazy judge or crazy uh, uh, congressional no. panel. This is this is a demonstration of the inst the machinery, the institutional machinery of white supremacy. Yep. Back to my well, in this case, male supremacy, too. OK. And the fact of the matter is you never had a pre-dawn raid on the Klan like you did the, the black classes and they were just trying to feed some kids and protect themselves. Mm -hmm. OK. So that's the extent to which, that's what I'm saying, white supremacy goes that white people better uh, wake up and see. Okay, because yeah. uh, the time is up. It's just, it's just done. Yeah. <laughs> and people of color got to go. I just feel like I'm done. I've voted. I've done it all. And, and then my vote still is suppressed. What, what am I going to keep voting for? 
Well, don't give up, Tony. Please don't give up. We, we need your vote. We need all of our votes. That is exactly what the Koch brothers and Chuck Grassley and Donald Trump want, is for Democrats not to vote, to, to get discouraged, to say, okay, what the hell, they beat me. We've got to fight back. Tony, thank you for the call. Verity in Addison, Illinois. Hey, Verity, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Yes, I wanted to talk about the war on science being waged by the left and my guess as to why they're doing it. Because we all know that the right don't like climate science. It threatens their drug pipeline, their drug being money. And evolution threatens their authoritarian control through religion. But why does the left dismiss and disparage the incontrovertible physical evidence that of the neuroscientific, the neurophysiological and genetic determinants of human personality and behavior. And my guess is this. The left are pro-social protectors of abused minorities who are often abused because of physical factors they cannot change, being black, Semitic, female, gay, etc. But this is not the true cause of the abuse. The abuse is caused by a specific subset of human beings that occur in every human group without exception. Just as cancer is found in every group, so is parasitic intraspecies predation. Humans who habitually and deliberately harm other people for personal and or private gain. Now the crux of the argument is this. Racism is not caused by race. It is caused by predators using race as a rationalization for their predation. And the ironic thing is, Race is not linked to any specific characteristic behavior, but predatory behavior does have specific physiological and possibly genetic determinants. In other words, predators are in effect projecting their own biologically determined behavior onto others whose race or gender does not determine any antisocial behavior. And my conclusion is, don't be afraid of physical truth. If you are indeed a partner and a protector and not a predator, the truth of the biological basis of behavior can only help you. Okay. Verity, you, you make a, a compelling argument, uh, I believe, um, and probably one that deserves more than four minutes on the radio. Yeah, uh, thank yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, we'll have to circle back to it at some point in the future. But thank you. Thank you for raising that. On the line with us right now is Professor Richard Wolf, our old friend, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work. Democracyatwork.info is the website. And his most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. The Republican tax scam. We had a conversation with David Stockman about six, eight months ago in which he was he was suggesting that uh, because the Republicans just jacked our national debt by one and a half trillion dollars, the Fed is or the, the Treasury Department is going to fl- have to float a trillion and a half dollars worth of, of uh, notes of IOUs of, of treasuries. And that if there's not a lot of demand for them, that that will that, the, that they'll have to offer a higher interest rate in order to get people to buy them. And uh, sure enough, the interest rate seems to be going up. And that when that happens, people are going to look at treasuries and say, you know, why should I ha- be in a risky stock market that's, you know, long in the tooth when uh, I can instead get a guaranteed 3% return? I'm just going to move my money out of the market and into the bonds. And when that happens, the stock market collapses and that that would all be a result of the GOP tax scam. And it would probably start in October, which is this week. And because this is the first week of the fiscal year when the federal government has to float all these loans. Does all that make sense, A and B? Do you, do you agree with Stockman or is he missing something or, or what? What Stockman is doing here, and what he often does, is to present a scenario. Is it possible that things will develop the way he said? The answer is unequivocally, yes. Is it certain that this is going to play out in the way he suggests? Then the answer has to be unequivocally, no. It depends on so many variables that can go in God knows what direction, mm-hmm. that predicting is, as usual, a very dicey um, proposition. Let's go to the first part of it, though, which I think in a way is ties together many things. If the United States, as it has done, cut taxes on corporations drastically from the 35% to the 21%, as it did last December, and saves corporations huge amounts of money that they paid in taxes, and at the same time, because they couldn't have got it through Congress otherwise, they increase, although modestly, government spending, 
then, as you put it, they're going to have to borrow huge amounts of money. Well, on the one hand, they're going to have trouble doing that because some of the biggest lenders to the United States government, in particular Russia and China, are not going to be doing that uh, in the way they've done in the past. In fact, they're cutting back. And my guess is they will do a good bit more cutting back, which means they may have some trouble being able to uh, float those bonds without offering more and more interest rates, which will have the devastating effects that you described. So I think people should keep that in their mind, that it's not only the tax cut that the that this crazy administration rammed through when it wasn't an appropriate thing to do, but it's the combination of that with their disastrous foreign policy maneuvers that may be a one-two punch uh, that'll knock out the American economy, and, and we will be talking about that for a long time. But I mean, let's suppose, let's suppose, one last point, let's, let, let's suppose that that doesn't happen, that somehow the federal government of the United States will be able to borrow this immense amount of money that it has to because it cut its own taxes, mostly on corporations and the rich. What's need, what need, people need to understand is that the only way the government can pull this off, especially if Russia, China, and so on cut back, is by borrowing from corporations and the rich inside the United States. So here's the irony, and if you understand this, you understand so-called high finance. The government cuts taxes on corporations and the rich, and then turns around, and instead of taxing them, borrows the same money from them, having to pay them interest every year for a bunch of years, and then returning the money to them. That's why corporations and the rich like this kind of maneuver, because they save on taxes and basically substitute a profitable, interest-bearing loan to the government for the money they used to have to the government in paying taxes. It is a stupendous subsidy to them. And, and all the rest of us pay the interest. Absolutely. And, and have to come up with the money to pay them back, you know, as those bonds mature that right. they have in their hands. That's why they go for this kind of thing. Now, the, the, the other point that, that uh, uh, Stockman made was that if interest rates were just to go up a point, a point and a half, that the interest on a national debt of 20, 21, 22 trillion would uh, exceed what we're spending on the Pentagon right now, which I think is 600 and change billion dollars. And that when that happens, I mean, that'll be a, a psychological threshold of nothing else. Um, and, and, and by the way, that's more than we spend on all our domestic programs, our, our discretionary domestic programs combined by, right. by an order of magnitude. And uh, that, that when that happens, uh, there will be such a hue and cry about the unsustainability of the debt in the United States. I mean, Pete Peterson on steroids, although he's passed away, um, that that the people will demand that the Republicans prevail in destroying Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, long-term unemployment insurance, all these other uh, so-called social programs. I would say that they maintain a democracy, a society, a functioning society, but that uh, people will demand that these programs be replaced or done away with because people don't want to be saddled with this enormous debt. Now, that's been the Republican talking point since 1960. But, you know, yep. they're still they're still doing that dance. And and I think what he's doing is previewing Paul Ryan's strategy after the elections. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's correct. I think that's the logical thing for them to, to have to do. Now that the pretense that they care about a, a deficit is exploded by their own decision, <coughs> I think that's what we can expect. I think one more dimension that perhaps Stockman didn't talk about is that because of the crash of capitalism back in 2008 and the decision of the Federal Reserve to drop interest rates virtually to zero in the 10 years since, Every corporation that wanted some free money to borrow to try something it thought might work has borrowed that money. Every third world government that needed the money to survive has borrowed at these low interest rates. And they now have to pay the rising interest rates as the Federal Reserve jacks up the interest rates. That puts countries like Argentina, Turkey, Indonesia, and a whole bunch of others in an impossible situation. They cannot 
carry uh, and service the debt that they have accumulated. And the result is those countries are plunging into the kind of mess you could see already in Turkey and in other countries. And that, too, will play its role in disrupting global arrangements and so forth. Mm. To pretend that this is all under control of Mr. Trump and his environment is so silly that it's kind of hard to take seriously. But they're trying manfully to act as though they're in charge of all of this and that the economy is healthy. We have a debt-ridden economy that is less sustainable and more fragile than I've ever seen in my life. Wow, wow. A, uh, a grim reminder of the reality that uh, has been brought to us by Reaganomics and the two Santa Claus theory, et cetera. Professor Richard Wolf, thanks so much for dropping by. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. And thanks. It's always good talking with you, sir. Uh, Richard Wolf, uh, democracyatwork.info. You can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. Hi, I'm Randy, and this is Dave. We're the founders of Bombas, makers of the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. So comfortable, we've sold and donated over 8 million pairs. Yes, donated. Why? We learned that socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. So we started Bombas with the mission of donating a pair of socks for every pair we sell. To donate and sell a lot of socks, we became obsessed with comfort. We reinvented the sock from the ground up using the best materials available. Like the softest and most comfortable cotton. Getting rid of what wasn't working. Like that annoying toe seam you can probably feel if you wiggle your toes right now. And inventing a few new comfort innovations along the way. Like arch support that feels like a hug around your midfoot. It worked. People tried them, loved them, told their friends about them. Helping us sell and donate over 8 million pairs. Try them now at bombas.com slash Tom and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash T-H-O-M. Bombas.com slash Tom. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from the crash of 2016. This is page 34. Uh, prior to this, we've set up how Conservatives saw the 60s as a time of great social chaos and the rise of Ralph Nader and and uh, Rachel Carlson and uh, whole consumer and environmental movements as threats to profitability and business. And they had to do something about it. So page 34. Louis F. Powell Jr. was just sitting down to breakfast in his suite at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City when he received a call from the White House. The year was 1971, more than 40 years since the last great crash. The 60s had ended and the Vietnam War had destroyed the Democratic Party, leaving Richard Nixon as president of the United States. And Nixon needed a favor. A thin, ascetic man with wispy hair and fragile features, Lewis Powell had ancestral roots in America's first European settlement, Jamestown, and a lifetime of participation in the law. He deeply loved his rich Richmond, Virginia home and the law practice he had there, which mostly consisted of defending corporate interests and wealthy Southern white men. He walked comfortably, often in crepe-soled shoes, dressed as a Southern gentleman, and spoke so softly that people sometimes leaned forward to listen. But when he spoke, his words were precise, well-measured, and carefully considered. He was one of the most brilliant jurists of his day, and so it's no surprise that the Nixon White House was considering him for a seat on the Supreme Court, a job he turned down at first. But then when Nixon called him again at the Waldorf Astoria, he reluctantly accepted. As a Supreme Court Justice, Lewis Powell was very much the moderate, and his legacy on the high court would reflect his balanced and authentic interpretation of the rule of law in America. However, just a few months before he was nominated by Nixon, Powell had written a memo to his good friend Eugene Sindor Jr., the director of the United States Chamber of Commerce at the time, and Powell's most indelible mark on our nation was not to be his 15-year tenure as a Supreme Court Justice, but instead that memo which served as a declaration of war, a war by the economic royalists against both democracy and what they saw as an overgrown middle class. It would be a final war, a bella omnium contra omnis, against everything the New Deal and the Great Society had accomplished. It wasn't until September 1972, 10 months after the Senate confirmed Powell, that the public first found out about the Powell memo. The actual document had the word confidential stamped on it, a sign that Powell himself hoped it would never see daylight outside of the rarefied circles of his rich friends. By then, however, it had already found its way to the desks of CEOs all across the nation and was, with millions in corporate and billionaire money, already being turned into real actions, policies, and institutions. 
During its investigation into Powell as part of the nomination process, the FBI never found the memo, but investigative journalist Jack Anderson did, and he exposed it in a September 28, 1972 column titled, Powell's Lessons to Business Aired. Anderson wrote, shortly before his appointment to the Supreme Court, Justice Lewis F. Powell Jr. urged business leaders in a confidential memo to use the courts as a social, economic, and political instrument. Pointing out that the memo wasn't discovered until after Powell was confirmed by the Senate, Anderson wrote, Senators never got a chance to ask Powell whether he might use his position on the Supreme Court to put his ideas into practice and to influence the court on behalf of business interests. This was an explosive charge being leveled at the nation's rookie Supreme Court justice, a man entrusted with interpreting our nation's laws with absolute impartiality. But Jack Anderson was no stranger to taking on American authority and no stranger to the consequences of his journalism. He'd exposed scandals from the Truman, Eisenhower, Nixon, and later the Reagan administrations. He was a true investigative journalist. In his report on the memo, Anderson wrote, Powell recommended a militant political action program ranging from the courts to the campuses. Quote, no thoughtful person can question that the American economic system is under broad attack, end quote. When Sindor and the chamber received the Powell memo, corporations were growing tired of their second-class status in America. Even though the previous 40 years had been a time of great growth and strength for the American economy and America's middle-class workers, and a time of sure and steady increases in profits for corporations, CEOs felt something was missing. If they could only find a way to wiggle back into the people's minds who were just beginning to forget the royalists' previous exploits in the 1920s that had crashed our economy, then they could get their tax cuts back. They could trash the burdensome regulations that were keeping the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the food we eat safe. And the banksters among them could inflate another massive economic bubble to make themselves all mind-bogglingly rich. It could, if done right, be a return to the roaring 20s. But how could they do this? How could they convince Americans to take another shot at what was widely considered a dangerous free market ideology and economic framework and that Americans once, uh, once knew preceded every great crash in war? But Lewis Powell had an answer. And he reached out to the Chamber of Commerce, the hub of corporate power in America, with a strategy. As Powell wrote, strength lies in organization, in careful long-range planning and implementation, in consistency of action over an indefinite period of years, in the scale of financing available only through joint effort, and in the political power available only through unified action and national organizations. Thus, Powell said, the role of the National Chamber of Commerce is therefore vital. And out of the Powell memo came every, all these think tanks and uh, judicial programs, college campus programs. He, he reshaped America, and it led directly to the Buckley versus Vallejo decision. Donald in Aurora, Illinois. Hey, Donald, what's on your mind? Thanks for listening to WCPT. Yes, hi, Tom. You, you might probably disagree on some of the stuff I'm going to say. There's got to be term limits on these Supreme Court justices. I agree. This position now is being abused. And not only that, there is it being abused. They're no longer being appointed as non-partial people that are going to work on the behalf of the American people or, or the Constitution. They are literally being in there for an extension of the very party that appoints them. This is nonsense. Yeah. And for them to have a, a lifetime commitment until they hit the graveside is, is crazy, too. No, 15 or 20 years most, that's what they should serve. And maybe even put an age limit on that, like 75 years of old. You know, like you would do with a tire when you yeah. buy one. And the thing is, too, they also should do something about our voting rights. They shouldn't wait. If they get the House and the Senate, our Democrats, they should not waste any time with trying to go after the Republicans. Try to save, do everything you can to save our voting rights, because that, no matter what you do, that is the thing. We've had elections stolen from us and everything. Get rid of that. Citizens United, that, that gerrymandering of districts, that electoral college, and have open and free elections, and also get rid of the, the I think, debolt machine. I don't know, could they do something about it? If they can all gather together and work together and getting a machine that somebody works for and use paper ballots, no more of this stuff. Open and free elections, you know, the kind that we send our soldiers to go die for in other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I get it and I agree. These are all very, very large issues, Donald. Thank you very much for the call. Jerry in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Jerry, it says here you're very upset with me. What About what? Yes. Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I I get upset with you when you make statements like you did earlier about Joe Manchin and about how you would not shed a tear 
if Joe Manchin did not win re-election in West Virginia. That was not and, that was not the essence of my point. The essence of my point was that if you look at at the West Virginia vote, and uh, that in the in the Democratic primary, it was overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders carried West Virginia by more than 20 points over Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And he would have and he would have wiped out Donald Trump in the general election. The the voters well, of West Virginia were are were when they voted for Donald Trump, they weren't voting for a Republican. They were voting for a, a, a an outsider and they were voting for the progressive parts by and large that he was promising. He was promising to strengthen Social Security, to strengthen Medicare, to get us out of crazy wars, to you know to stop trade policies that are shipping our jobs overseas. Um, you know, he, he made all these promises that have been typically Democratic promises. Joe Manchin has been this guy in the middle. He's basically been taking the positions that the Republicans did back in the 60s and 70s and, and that the Democratic Party is largely left behind. And if, if it turns out that Joe Manchin, because of this vote, uh, ends up not getting reelected. I think he's up for reelection in two years. No, he's up for election this this cycle. Yeah, this year. If if he ends up losing his seat, that would be a disaster because we have a Republican for the next six years from West Virginia. But right. if what that means is that six years from now he has a primary challenger, and and a progressive takes him on, I think that progressive will win. That was my well, point. Okay. Yeah, but the thing, Tom. I mean, we. And, and I remember, because I've been listening to you for many, many years, and I remember the same attitude towards uh, Blanche Lincoln in Arkansas and uh, Mary Landrieu down in Louisiana. And they are now and gone, they, and it's not because of they're me. They're both gone. It's because, and, they were, well, it's because they were conservadems. The, the well, nation rather, is over it with the conservadems. I mean, the, you know, my, my, opinion is, my opinion is no. I mean, we need to have every Democrat. Because I'd rather have a Joe Manchin or a Mary Landrieu or Blanche Lincoln who are going to vote along with Democrats 80% of the time than some Tea Party Republican who's not going to vote along with us is any. I agree, and I'm not calling on West Virginians to vote for the Republican opposite Joe Manchin. What I am saying, though, is I think that this vote, no matter, and the main point of what I was saying, is Joe is damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, because right now he right. has to depend on a lot of Trump voters to get himself reelected, and those people increasingly are calling themselves Republicans and watching Fox News, and they're not going to be inclined to vote for him. And if he throws them, a, you know, if, if, he, if he's the guy who pushes um, Kavanaugh over the top, I frankly doubt that there's going to be enough Republican voters, Trump voters in West Virginia, to reelect Joe Manchin based on that when his Democratic base deserts him because of that vote. And on the other hand, if, if he votes against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, you know, joins the other Democrats, that's going to you know, satisfy the Democratic base. But he has failed to energize the Democratic base because, you know, he's, he's, not, a, he's, not, a, he's not even remotely a progressive. So he's, well, he's in this ter terrible situation of his own making. Joe in Cupertino, California. Hey, Joe, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. Great shows today. Um, Thank you. I called Louisa to keep it short, but, you know, uh, we had Diane out here, and she's running again this year. Diane Feinstein? She served. Yes, I think she served mm -hmm. her purpose. I really want to support her. Uh, she's probably going to win. But we need to start finding her replacement, whether it's uh, for Diane, who's aged, or Camilla Harris may be getting moved up. I think we need to start looking to someone coming up. Ballots are being mailed out here in California on Monday. Um, I, I love Roe, and I love uh, Congressman Pocan. I think they're the face of the future. Um, I don't know if you've seen anybody in California that you like, but Californians need to rally behind somebody. As a Bernie crack, I will support whatever Democratic candidate comes forward. Currently, they're looking at the Senate Speaker uh, Pro Tem uh, de Leon as Diane's replacement. I don't support that, but who who will replace Diane Feinstein in the 2020 election is the question I have, and I just wanted to see if you had any opinion there. She's up for re-election in 2020. No, she's up for re-election this year. That's what I thought. You know, she's 90. She's going to be 90 years old, and I think she's going to be re-elected. But I, I think it's time for Feinstein is eighty nine. No, she, I think I, she's almost. I think 90. you're a. I think you're a decade ahead of yourself. I think she's almost eighty. She just had surgery to have a pacemaker implanted, and I thought that was going to give her a reason to well, retire. Well, yeah. I mean, my brother-in-law had that when he was sixty-five. That 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 doesn't mean 
you know, that just means she's got a congenital heart you know, condition. No, 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 I understand that. Now, as I suggest, uh, you were talking about term limits, and I think that the federal retirement age is something like 72. Now, if you apply those kind of logical terms, and we don't have to deal with, you know, 1951, Grassley was elected to the Congress. Now, how does he know about birth control? It wasn't legal. You've thought this before. So, I mean, at some point, you've got to give a younger guy a chance. And I think that we have a new class of people coming up. So who do you want to see replace uh, Feinstein when the day comes? I mean, who, who do you think? I mean, I, obviously, Gavin Newsom gets uh, national publicity, no, I, but he's running really for governor, like isn't he? Adam Schiff is a very smart man. I think Adam Schiff knows his business. I think Adam Schiff is uh, the person that's got the spine that maybe might be lacking in some of the other Democrats. And he certainly knows how to use the media. Well, he does too, but he's been reelected for like what ten years. Yeah, but he he kind of yeah. lives on MSNBC. I mean, uh, he's uh, which I, I'm saying that is a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. That you know he knows how to use the media and and you know get the message out there. Uh, you know, I I thought that David or Garamende is another name that comes, but he's also an elderly gentleman. And I mm -hmm. think once you're seventy years old, it's kind of hard to relate to the new, the young people that are voting. Yeah. So well, and 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 then the Republicans. I mean, Amy Coney Bryant is, I think, forty six. She's she's uh, half a decade younger younger than Brett Kavanaugh. Um, she's the next one that they'll pop up to the Supreme Court. And another uh, another name I'm just throwing out there, but it's probably not for Senate. Mm. Is uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, so Garamendi. Uh, right. This is another up-and-coming rising star in the Democratic Party. I don't know if he wants to be a senator or not, but he's this is the youth. We're going to bring I, I think probably anybody who has fought to gain elective office, you know, particularly one as high as the mayor of Los Angeles, would be just fine with becoming a United States senator. Joe, thanks for the call. This is a good conversation for Californians to be having. Absolutely. Luke Vargas is on the line with us. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, Alan Ratner's new book. Luke, uh, what's, what's up in the news today? Hey, Tom. Well, can I uh, zoom over to a domestic story? Zoom away, is, Luke. We're, we're learning a little bit more about Amazon's pay raise not being quite what we thought it was. Oh, I got an be. email from an Amazon worker. I talked about this yesterday, and an Amazon worker sent me a note saying, yeah, everybody in the bottom got a pay raise. I just got a pay cut. And I was like, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how much detail she went into, because we're learning a little bit more as this progresses. What we're, we're now hearing is that warehouse workers are no longer going to get bonuses each month for their attendance or for extra productivity, which amounted to hundreds of dollars a month on average, the Associated Press reporting. this may, People may be losing uh, about $3,000 a year because of these lost benefits. And one that really caught my attention, Amazon is discontinuing its stock reward program for longtime employees. And that's really important because the Amazon you know, sh share price is now about almost $1,900 a share. And when you started employment in these warehouse jobs, apparently, and this will be good to have your uh, listener follow up, uh, an employee would get one to two shares. That's not a you know insignificant amount of money. And then one extra share per year. Someone in the AP article saying, how is an employee even making $15 an hour ever going to save up to buy $1,900, $2,000 a share stock? So again, uh, maybe not a huge impact on new hires, but they do seem to be sort of fitting this economic mold of, you know, not rewarding longevity and loyalty. To well, and one has to wonder if, if when they start having a decline in longevity and loyalty and a decline in productivity, because they're no longer rewarding it, to what extent will they say a year from now, well, gee, look at this, our productivity is down, our turnover is up, we never should have given that pay raise, we're going to go back to minimum wage. That would be extraordinarily cynical. I hope we don't see that. <laughs> and I will, to Amazon's credit, say they were not at minimum wage to begin with. Yeah, uh, yeah. They, I, they were so paying anyway, 12 bucks. I will, an you know, yeah, I find it telling the way Amazon's sort of corporate spokespeople have been spinning this today, saying, look, this is a great thing. We're giving our employees more, co making compensation, quote, more immediate and predictable, which to me reads as, hey, we're going to give everyone you know, one M&M now as opposed to two tomorrow. You know, it's like right. they're, they're buying into people's instincts to take a little more money up front, but then taking away the benefits that the old American economy used to give workers who really legged it out for a company. Now it's just, hey, get, get a higher wage and you should be grateful for it. It's, uh, you know, obviously there was 
a little bit of uh, a more complicated truth behind this very flowery story that we were all celebrating earlier this week. Yeah, remarkable. It's like the marshmallow test. Luke Vargas with Talk Media News. So you can follow him at The Courier on Twitter. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Yep. Great talking with you. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Superbeets by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. With the uh, Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading from Healing ADD. Richard Bandler, the founder of Neurolinguistic Programming, NLP, wrote the foreword for this book. And it's basically a book on NLP as applied to people with ADHD. But it's actually a pretty, pretty good book on NLP, which is actually how I originally wrote it. So we're on Chapter 8 on page 80, Reconstructing the Past. Uh, Different types of memories, regardless of how anchored in reality or fantasy they may be, are stored in our brains in different ways. These forms of storage involve the five sensory modalities, sight, smell, hearing, taste, and feeling, and the subtle gradations of each sense, such as color, brightness, or contrast for the visual modality, for example. These gradations are referred to as sub-modalities. This is true for both adults and children. One of the ways our brain organizes information is according to the way it's stored. Our senses pick up something in the outside world. Say we see an insect fly by. That's an objective thing that we've seen. However, before that image makes its way to our conscious brain, it's processed by other parts of the mind and tweaked and tuned. If it's a bug that frightens us, perhaps a wasp, then the mind sees it as a bigger object and in sharper contrast than it really is. Other objects in the picture, the background, buildings, grass, whatever, become more distant, dull, perhaps even less colorful. The mind may increase the volume of the sound associated with the wasp and also attach a feeling to the image, probably a variation on what we might interpret as fear or panic, a a feeling felt perhaps in the pit of the stomach or the trembling of the hands. So here's a quick list of some of the submodalities that we commonly use to experience reality and store memory. In the visual field, color or black and white, so this is how, how do you remember things visually? Color or black and white, contrast, size, bordered or not, moving or still, brightness, graininess, distance from us, associated or disassociated. In other words, do we see the scene as we saw it or do we see ourselves in it? Focus, detail, texture, perspective, dimensionality, is it flat or 3D? Proportion, that's the visual field. In in auditory, loudness, tonality, distance, pitch, melody, inflection, location, tempo, duration. Gustatory, uh, salty, sweet, spicy, musty, bitter, familiar, delicate, olfactory, strong, faint, intermittent, familiar, unique, musty, moist, damp, mildewy, kinesthetic, the feeling, hard, soft, cool, warm, sharp, electric, intensity, duration, speed, location. Now here's the amazing part. If you know what modalities and submodalities your mind uses to store a particular type of memory, happy, sad, hopeful, afraid, neutral, whatever kind of memory it is, then you can adjust the memories you have of the past to change their emotional feel. For example, think of something, a memory of something that you did in the recent past, such as brushing your teeth last night. Mentally list the qualities of the submodalities. Your list might look something like mine. I see a still picture in black and white without a lot of contrast or detail. Associated, I see the mirror in the sink, but not myself. No border, 3D, about two feet square, about 20 feet away from me. I can hear the sound of the water running and taste the mint of the toothpaste. If I concentrate on it, I can remember or imagine remembering the feeling of the toothpaste on my toothbrush on my gum and the smell of the toothpaste. The feelings I associate with the memory are pretty neutral. Boredom might be the best way to describe it. It's something I do every night. Now imagine a control panel just below the image or wherever you'd like it to be with levers and dials that you can use to change the various submodalities. Reach out and change a few of the submodalities and see how things change. 
When I move the picture from black and white to color, I suddenly feel curious and interested in the process of brushing my teeth. It seems fascinating. If I turn up the volume, I become uneasy. As I increase the mint taste, I feel more awake. Nobody knows why this works the way it does. One theory is that the brain stores information holographically rather than digitally, so that the brain sees its own storage capacity as a three-dimensional space. Because we experience the world through our senses, it makes sense that we could organize the mechanism for storing the information about our experience of the world along sensory lines as well. When something is put into a particular space, it acquires a sensory nat- the sensory, sensory nature of that space, since sensory signals are how we experience the world. So when a memory is put into the boring category in our brain, it becomes, in my case, everybody's different, but it becomes, for me, black and white still pictures and all the other submodalities I described before. When the submodalities are adjusted and the pictures are turned into a color movie, it doesn't just change the memory. It actually causes us to interconnect with or slide to a different storage place, a physical different storage space in my holographic brain. There's also a concept known as a critical submodality. That's the submodality which has the ability to shift others, probably the primary hook into the place in the brain hologram where the memory is stored. As you're going through the various submodalities, changing each one a bit in one way or another, turning up or down the brightness, the volume, you'll notice that there's generally one particular one. It could be anything from volume to contrast to smell to brightness, anything. It causes the entire picture to change and creates a sudden shift in the feelings associated with that memory. That submodality shift is the critical submodality. And once you know what your critical submodalities are, you can do this process much quicker. One of the most common and most powerful critical submodalities is location. When you move a picture from where it is, for example, in front and to the right, about four feet away, to some other place, for example, in front and slightly over your eyes, only a foot away, it often changes dramatically its impact. So it goes from there to talk about how to take memories that bother you or that haunt you even and transform them into things that are simply just who cares memories. The book is Healing ADD, Simple Exercises That Will Change Your Daily Life. Tom Harbin here with you, picking up your phone calls, and Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Well, you started to mention a little bit about it. My topic is, what is to become of the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh? Which allegations? Um, you mean the sexual assault allegation? Yeah. Okay. We have to look at this, at least the senators ought to. This is not a matter of beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not even a matter of preponderance of the evidence. It's a matter of sufficient doubt. Right. Sufficient doubt as in playing Russian roulette. Russian roulette is one in six or one in eight. No one would do that, right? Right. We're talking percentages that are very low. Uh, and I would say that uh, regardless of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, set that aside, his own testimony left plenty of doubt. Yeah, which plenty is why the doubt. ABA has reopened their inquiry into whether his downgrade to merely qualified status should be downgraded further. Well, and, tw- and 2,500 law, law professors, professors. Yeah. have signed an open letter uh, against his, his uh, nomination, uh, against his, uh, his confirmation. And 2,500, yeah. by the way, this was on another program, uh, is a... 15% of all the law professors in the country, because there's only about 17,000 of them. Wow. I was wondering <laughs> I was wondering about the context. That's fascinating. But this is what I wanted to talk about. Why I started to think, what's to become of this? There's an article in the National Review that says, well, you remember the book uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, sure. where uh, a black man was accused of raping a white woman. Right. And the movie Gregory Peck played Atticus Finch, who successfully defended the black man. They're saying, if, if we aren't, in, in, in this context, Atticus Finch would be a rape denier. So they're playing racism against sexual assault. Well, this is, this is my point in my first hour rant, Paul, where I, I, I was going off on, you know, you've got four different Fox hosts now who have said that this is all because Kavanaugh is a white man. And, and so, uh, okay, who's going after the white man? Well, there's only two people of color on the Senate Judiciary Committee. They're both Democrats. One's a man, one's a woman, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris. Is that what they're saying? Uh, you know, I haven't been watching Fox News, so I don't know if they're showing, you know, uh, black senators when they say this. But, well, you know, racializing this is insane. Well, let's look at Anita Hill. We essentially left her hung out to dry. Democrats were in, char- were in control of the Senate at the time. And so what happened then? It, it was race played against 
sexual harassment. Yeah, and Joe Biden has since like, apologized well, we for that. have to put a black on the court because a black man just died and left the court. Yeah. Got, so it, it, it's insane. And this is what, now we have, I, I'm very frustrated, Tom, because we have uh, a white woman being uh, alleging sexual assault against a black, it's not even sexual assault, when you, when you count him covering her airway, that's just plain first-degree felony assault. Right. Okay, but we have this, this is, these are two white people, and 53% of white women voted for Trump. I don't know how to advocate for women for women when that's what happens. 53% is not right. all the women. 53% of white women is not all the women. Obviously, the majority of women, but that was made up by women of color. Yeah, it was only 3% of black women voted for Trump, as I recall. And, right. and, and, and this was, by the way, Paul, and let's you know, remind each other and our audience, this was after the Access Hollywood tape came out in which Trump bragged about grabbing women by the crotch and, and uh, you know, bragged about sexual assault and said, you know, when you're a star, they let you do it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is, this is what you... And so are we so, going to leave, leave Christine Blasey Ford hung out to dry? The only way it sure seems looks to like me it. to continue this investigating these allegations is for enough people to get off of their snitty whatever and start voting. And if we can take control of the House of Representatives, then they can open up hearings. That's right continue looking into this but otherwise this is just going to evaporate and we're going to be in the same position this should not be happening 27 years after clarence thomas well and remember you know after clarence thomas was put on the court um and again democrats controlled congress there was no follow-up on those hearings and right. you know it's, and it's, and, it's and uh, anita hill i mean it took her years happen and the other thing is uh you know Black people being subject to every sort of injustice, especially black men being shot, unarmed black men, and blacks vote in very small numbers. Yeah, well, that's, you know, part of that is the, is the legacy of Jim Crow, but yeah, we all need to be, young people are not voting, you know, basically the only minority group that Trump wants to go after who vote heavily are, are older people, and even there he's suppressing the vote. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. And don't forget, democracy depends on you. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Not a spectator sport, eh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 